In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about the disquieting sense of loss when things go missing. As we move towards March and nicer spring weather slowly starts arriving, some of you might be looking to add a bit of fun to your dark, disturbing podcast listening. If so, you should check out a new podcast that delivers some fun with its ghoulish gore. It's called Less is Morgue. Get it? Dead bodies go to the morgue. Less is Morgue. <laughs> yeah, you get it. Less is Morgue is an absurd dark horror comedy podcast from No Sleep's own Meg Malloy, Alexis Bristow, and Henry Galley. It's about Riley and Evelyn, a paranoid flesh-eating ghoul, and a cheerful ghost hosting a disastrous basement podcast together after Riley ate Evelyn's corpse. Expect monsters, mayhem, and many of the voices you know and love, like Graham Rowett, Nicole Goodnight, Peter Lewis, David Alt, Jessica McAvoy, and more. Death has never been less peaceful, but hey, at least it's funny. You can find the podcast at lessismorgue.com and on Twitter or Instagram under the username lessismorgue. So check it out and laugh the fear away. And speaking of fear, it's time we provide you with some. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, a man begins to notice dead animals appearing in his yard. Upsetting, right? Especially when there's a danger that his infant child might see them. But in this tale, shared with us by author Maya H., the man's wife doesn't seem anywhere near as concerned as he is. Performing this tale are David Alt, Erica Sanderson, and Penny Scott Andrews. So perhaps his wife doesn't care, or perhaps she knows more than she's letting on, such as the secret of the baby who ate. One warm April morning, I decided to have my morning coffee outside in the garden while my wife got our one-year-old ready for the day. I had only taken a few steps towards the patio chairs when my shoe squelched down on the corpse of a rotting mouse. 
I felt the ick rise up through my spine and instinctively held my foot in the air. Below my hovering foot were half a dozen dead mice, their innards strewn beside them with holes in their flesh. They must have been dead at least a day or two as they were writhing with maggots. Claire! Claire, come and, come and look at this! What is it? My wife came running out of the house, a look of panic already on her face. Oh, look, I guess it must have been foxes or something. I don't think Gary would be capable. Gary was an old and rather large cat. There was no way he had the agility to catch six mice. I didn't think he even ventured out into the garden anymore. Yes, I heard foxes last night. Must have been them. I'll clean it up. Could you go and check on Vera? I headed inside, leaving my shoes outside the back door while my wife cleared up the mess. Vera was in her high chair, slamming cherry tomatoes into her mouth. And how are you, my hungry little hippo? I knew it bothered my wife when I called Vera my hungry hippo. I had called Claire the same throughout her pregnancy when our humble Sunday roasts had turned into Tudor feasts. Vera babbled back at me and motioned for more food. Don't call her that, Pete. Claire must have heard me as she came in. Sorry, uh, it's uh, Ma's birthday a week on Friday, yeah? We need to get her something and maybe book a table somewhere. Yes, definitely. My wife brushed me off and wandered towards the living room. At one point, Ma and Claire had been close, but in the last few months, their weekly brunches and daily phone calls had vanished. Ma asked after Claire whenever we spoke, so it was clear to me who was pulling away. Two weeks after Ma's birthday, I found the remains of a magpie by our bins. There were only small sections of flesh left clinging to its bare bones. Its eyes were missing and it had been gutted. Over the next months, I began to find more animal remains. A disfigured rat by the fence, a mutilated squirrel in the back bushes, a family of eyeless frogs under a pile of raked leaves. Whenever I mentioned these to my wife, she came up with some mundane explanation. Must be those foxes. I saw Gary with a rat last night. The neighbor's dog chases squirrels. She never wanted to admit that these explanations didn't quite suffice. Finding the mangled corpse of a rabbit tucked behind a corner in the driveway was the last straw. I resolved to buy a security camera and find out what was going on. Maybe it was just other animals, but I'd rather put the thought that some serial killer was practicing in our garden to rest. I left work half an hour early that day so I could stop to buy a security camera on my way home. When I got home, I followed the sound of conversation to the kitchen where I found my wife sitting at the table with Vera and my mother. My wife had clearly been crying. Is everything okay, honey? I looked over to my mother for reassurance, but she wouldn't make eye contact. Gary's gone missing! I looked over at my mother again, who could still not meet my eyes. Well, it's not even been a day. I'm, I'm sure he'll be home soon. My words only sparked more bawling from my wife. <laughs> no, Pete. He's gone. He's not coming back. <laughs> she threw her head into her hands. 
My mother looked over at me and motioned that we talk away from my wife. We stepped out into the hall. Claire isn't well. I don't think she's been well for a while. Why? What has she said? I just think she needs a rest. You know it can be really hard on new mothers, and you've been working a lot. I think she needs some time off. Why don't I have Vera for the weekend, and you and Claire do something nice for yourselves? The weekend rolled around, and there was still no sign of Gary. I had put up posters and knocked on doors, but no one had seen him. I hadn't found him in the garden, though, and that somewhat eased my worries. On Saturday morning, we dropped Vera off at my mother's. I had decided to book a hotel in the city for the night and take Claire out for dinner somewhere fancy. To say Claire was hesitant would be an understatement. At first, she had outright refused, but she couldn't keep up excuses and eventually caved. As the evening progressed, Claire relaxed and I was reminded of our first few years together. We both seemed to have agreed without saying so that we would keep the topic of conversation away from Vera. It wasn't until the drive home on Sunday morning that we spoke of her. Vera killed Gary. Her words cut across the engine hum. I kept my eyes on the road, processing the three words. What do you mean? I forgot to give her her nightsies and she got hungry. Nightsies? Admittedly, I often let my wife deal with bedtime duties, and most Vera duties for that matter, so I was out of the loop. Her last snack before she goes to bed. If she doesn't get it, she gets hungry. It took me a moment to speak. So, you forgot to give our baby daughter a bedtime snack. She got uncontrollably hungry, so she killed and ate our cat. I tried to relay just how crazy her words were sounding. Maybe this is what she'd said to my mother. Maybe she really was unwell. That's exactly what happened. We drove the rest of the way in silence. We had planned to stop at my mother's to pick Vera up on our way home. We tried to call ahead as we were leaving, but they must have spent the day in the garden. My mother wasn't answering her phone. When we arrived, none of the lights in the house were on and the front gate was locked. Usually my mother locks it at night and unlocks it in the morning when she takes her little lapdog for his morning walk. No one answered when I rung the doorbell. No one answered when I called over the garden fence. I had a spare key to my mother's house in my car, so I hurriedly fetched it. I fumbled with the keys and shoved at the door till it swung open into an unlit house. I could hear Vera crying somewhere upstairs and Claire rushed off to find her. I checked the downstairs rooms. There was no sign of my mother. Claire came briskly down the stairs carrying Vera and walked straight out to the car. She didn't look at me, but I saw terror on her face. I headed upstairs towards my mother's bedroom, picturing my mother collapsed on her bathroom floor, clutching at her heart. A car engine started outside. The bedroom door was ajar, and as I creaked it further open, I caught sight of Ma. She lay on her back, sprawled across the bed, her arms spread out either side of her. Her Yorkshire Terrier lay beside her. They looked like the mice, and the magpie, and the squirrel, and the frogs, and the rabbit. Eyeless, fleshless, 
eaten. It's dangerous to drive when you're tired. That's why we have to commend Hank for pulling into a rest stop to get a good night's sleep. And he wakes up refreshed and ready to continue his drive. But in this tale, shared with us by author V.R. Gregg, the problem is that the next day, Hank can't remember which car was his, nor where he was going, nor where he came from. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Jesse Cornett, Graham Rowett, and Aaron Lillis. So maybe pay attention to the poor cleanliness, the lack of comfort, and the strange desk clerk, and take it as a sign not to stay at the Sleep Easy Motor Lodge. Hank had been driving for 15 hours straight when the neon sign lured him off the interstate. He'd long been past the point of tiredness, and exhaustion had begun to seep into his bones. That might have been why the dilapidated motel, slung low and half hidden by the overpass, looked so inviting. Or maybe it was what the sign said. Sleep Easy Motor Lodge from $29.99 a night. Hank had planned to pull over at a rest stop and pass the early morning hours in his car. But his increasingly heavy eyelids and clammy skin begged for the civility of a bed and shower. Thirty bucks? I can do that. He was already pulling into the parking lot by the time his thought was finished. Hank blinked against the garish fluorescent light that bounced off the water-stained walls of the motel office. He eyed the half-full pot of percolated coffee next to the door, but a greasy shine floated on top of the black liquid and made his stomach turn. He focused his attention back to the task at hand. The desk was empty, unsurprisingly so at this time of night, but it irritated Hank just the same. He tapped his knuckle on the small brass bell and waited. A round-faced man with beady eyes and a bright red bow tie stuck his head out from a back room. Just a sec. He ducked into the dark before emerging again and shutting the door behind him carefully. Now, what can I do you for? A room. A single. In one night. A room? Well, you're in luck, because that's our business. What's your first and last name? The round-faced man grinned at Hank, oblivious to his stony expression. Clifton. Henry. Oh, quite right. We've been expecting you, and we've already got number four made up for you. Here's your key. Let me know if you need anything. The man passed the brass key to Hank. Its fob was made of worn leather and stamped with the number four. Hank turned the heavy key over in his hand, staring at it blankly. Don't you need money or information or anything? The man smiled. No, sir, you're all set. Hank was about to argue when the man turned and walked into the back room, 
shutting the door behind him. Hank stood a moment longer at the desk, listening to the hum of the box fan in the window. When no one opened the door, he shrugged and picked up his duffel bag. He was too tired to care much and figured he could square up in the morning. Henry Clifton was a common enough name, and if he had stolen some other guy's room, it would be easy to explain. Plus, he thought, looking out across the empty parking lot, it wasn't as if they didn't have extra rooms. Any guilt Hank felt about the situation dissipated when he opened the door to room four. A heavy coating of dust blanketed the room, like it hadn't been cleaned in years. The musty odor of mold and stale cigarette smoke added to the effect. There was another smell, too, vaguely sweet and rotten, like fruit that had gone bad and had started to ferment. It reminded him of a demolition he'd done once, a casino that had been cleared out of its lights and games. That rank odor of cigarettes and piss-smelling beer remaining behind. He'd found a dead dog in the poker room, stuffed to the brim with puppies that had never made it out. That was the smell the room had. Hank shuddered at the memory and threw his duffel bag on the folding chair next to the door. Any other time, he might have complained. But in this case, his exhaustion and the fact that he had gotten the room seemingly for free made him complacent. He pulled a stiff towel from the bathroom without turning on the light. He preferred not to look. A barely perceptible puff of dust rose from the faded floral comforter when he laid the towel down. Hank ignored it and curled up on top of the towel. He didn't take his shoes off. Hank slept deeply and dreamlessly, and when the sun came pouring into his open window, he woke refreshed. He had hoped that the motel room would look better in the light, but he found the opposite to be true. The carpet was stained a rusty color around the walls, and black blooms of mold wove in delicate patterns along the ceiling. Hair gathered in balls in the corners of the bathroom, and the smell still hung in the air, strengthened by the warm sunlight. Hank felt like he was going to be sick if he stayed any longer. He grabbed his duffel and walked to the office. It was brighter and seemed smaller in the mid-morning sun, and Hank shuffled uncomfortably from one foot to the other. He didn't know why he felt so nervous, but he had the distinct sense that he had gotten away with something. The round-faced man beamed at him from behind the counter. Was everything to your liking, sir? Hank grunted. Not really. Would it kill you to hire a housekeeper at this dump? Plus, the room reeked. It straight up reeked. This made the man frown. I'm sorry that you found your accommodations unsatisfactory, sir, but you do get what you pay for. Yeah, about that. I, I think you gave me someone else's room. No, sir, that room was meant for you and you alone. But I didn't pay. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Will you be returning your key, or will you be joining us for another night? Hank cleared his throat and laid the key on the counter. <clears throat> I'm leaving, but thanks. Hank winced at the bright light as he walked into the nearly empty parking lot. Three cars were parked there. None of them looked familiar. Hank thought back to the car he was driving. The car he had owned for years. I couldn't picture it. 
He was unsure of the color, make, or year. He shook his head. How could he have forgotten which car was his? He walked past the three vehicles. Each had a license plate from a different state. Which state had he come from? Where did he live? He'd been driving for a long time, that much he knew. How far had he come? Hank couldn't remember. He fumbled for the key in his pocket, but came up empty. A creeping panic prickled the back of his neck. He turned back to the office. The round-faced man was looking at him expectantly as he opened the door. You... you you don't happen to remember the car I was driving when I came in here last night, do you? The man furrowed his brow in confusion. Is everything okay, sir? Is your vehicle missing? Should we alert the authorities? No, or at least I don't think so. It's just... I'm not quite sure which is mine. I... Do, do you have a security camera or anything? No, sir. Unfortunately, we're barely above water as it is. Technology like that is a bit above our capacity. If you'd like to stay here longer, feel free. You might remember shortly. The sunlight out here is a way of clarifying things. Hank shook his head and walked back into the parking lot, his mind racing through a fog. He squinted at each car in turn, but felt no recognition. He walked past each one, leaning forward to look in the driver's window. Had he gotten some food on his trip? Surely there would be evidence of a road trip, crumpled bags of fast food or cans of energy drinks. But each car was immaculate inside. Was there anything that looked familiar? Anything that felt like him? Henry pressed his palms into his eyes and winced at the pressure. Nothing looked right, and he couldn't make himself focus. He walked over to the side of the motel and lit a cigarette hoping to clear his head. He smoked in silence, listening for any signs of life in the hotel. Other than the round-faced man, he hadn't seen anyone coming or going. There must have been at least two others, though. What with the cars outside? But what if there wasn't anyone, Hank thought. He grinned at his own stupidity. Of course, none of those cars were his. And they didn't belong to anyone else, either. They had to be cars that belonged to the hotel. Didn't some of them do that out here? Classic cars in front of a rundown hotel, selling the illusion of 1950s road trip glamour. He shook his head at the simplicity of it. He'd let the dirty room and the quiet get to him. He could just report his car missing, rent a temporary one, and get out of here. Hank tossed his cigarette butt to the ground, not bothering to stamp it out. The man wasn't in the hotel anymore, and despite Hank yelling until his throat was dry and painful, no one showed up at the counter. He rang the bell, hitting it until a divot formed in his palm, but got no response. There was no phone behind the counter, and the door to the back room was securely locked, no matter how much Hank pounded against it. I really feel like you're trying to keep me here. The sunlight was magnified in the little office, and sweat stung at Hank's eyes. He let the door slam behind him as he walked out into the parking lot. It wasn't much cooler out there, with no breeze to stir the air. The absolute stillness unnerved Hank. He walked along the edge of the parking lot to where the overpass jutted up from the road. Below him was the interstate, 
stretching as far as he could see in both directions, the horizon flat and featureless. Not a vehicle moved along it. To his left was a country road that took off into the desert. It too was empty. Hank watched the roads before him until he was satisfied that there was no traffic. It had seemed like a few minutes, but when he turned back toward the motel, the sun was sinking below the horizon. Hank turned on his heel, checking behind him. Sure enough, the shadows of early evening stretched out over the road. Hank shook his head back and forth. Nothing made sense. He walked back to the office. This time the round-faced man was there. Jesus, are you the only one that works here? We're a small family-owned business, sir. No rest for the weary, I'm afraid. No rest, right. Uh, I came in here earlier to use your phone. You got one of those? The man shook his head sadly. I'm sorry to say that's why I was absent. The lines are down and we won't have someone out until tomorrow. And what about a cell phone? You got one of those? <laughs> that would require reception and, well... He motioned around as if the reasoning should be self-evident. Listen, I don't know what kind of game you're playing. Some sort of drug and strand passers-by and steal their money scam, I guess. But I don't have anything you want. And I swear to God, I will beat you to a pulp if I don't get out of here. The man looked concerned. I'm sorry, sir, that you've been having a bad day, but I'll ask you not to take that tone with me. I would be well within my rights as a business owner to refuse you service. Hank sighed and pinched the bridge of his nose. The thought of that endless empty road made him shudder. Okay, well, look, I'm sorry, and I guess I need to stay another night. I can't think straight, and, and even if I could find my car, I wouldn't feel right driving. Absolutely, sir. Room four is made up and waiting for you. The man passed the brass key across to Hank, who took it with a huff and left the office. The room was indeed made up, in that the towel had been removed from the bed. Hank grabbed it and placed it back before laying down. He didn't know what he planned to do, but he hoped another night's sleep would clear the cobwebs out of his head. He felt uneasy, but exhaustion soon won over. Hank awoke to the sound of crying. It was sometime early in the morning, and Hank's head felt heavy. Through his grogginess, he could tell that the crying was coming from the next room over. It was a shrill, high sound. A baby wailing at the top of its lungs. He punched his pillow, coughing at the eruption of dust, and put it over his ears. He laid like that for what felt like hours the high-pitched keening never stopping or quieting. Part of him felt relieved to no longer be alone. There was some sanity, finally, in his situation, but that part was drowned out by the need for sleep. Sighing, Hank pulled himself to his feet and walked out to the office. The lights were off inside, but the sickly yellow street lamp illuminated enough for Hank to see that the round-faced man was standing at the counter. He pushed the door open and walked purposefully inside. I need another room. Is something the matter with your current accommodation? Too many things to mention, but right now, that baby next door won't stop crying, and I need sleep. The round-faced man just smiled. 
So, can you move me or what? It's not like you're sold out. I'm sorry, sir, but room four is your room. Well, make room five my room or room six. What's the problem? There's no problem, sir. It's just there's no one in the room next to you. So I'm afraid switching rooms won't solve anything. Hank leapt toward the man, grabbing his collar in his fists. Move me! The round-faced man cocked his head to the side and smiled. I'm sorry, sir, but rules are rules. Hank tightened his grip on the man's collar, pulling him closer over the Formica counter. What is going on here? Tell me! The round-faced man opened his mouth. Sound poured from his unmoving lips like he was a record player. Hank! Hank, what have you done? Hank recognized that voice. It was his wife's. He'd forgotten about her, hadn't he? Confusion bubbled up inside him. Where had he been driving from and why? Where was he going? Images came flooding into Hank's mind all at once. The crib. The mobile swaying above it, casting grotesque shadows on the nursery wall. The look of horror on his wife's face. He loosened his grip on the man's shirt, setting him back down. No, no, I, I didn't. I mean, I didn't want to. She, she wouldn't stop crying, please. She wouldn't stop crying. Tears streamed down Hank's face. More images now. The duffel bag. The slamming door. The pulsing blue and red lights in the distance. The highway. The skid. The swerve. The blackness. Hank looked around. The round-faced man was smiling and nodding. You get it now, don't you? We've been expecting you. Hank clutched the sides of his head. What's going to happen to me? The man spoke calmly, and not without sympathy. Nothing you don't deserve. Being the coach of a high school sports team is hard. You want to pick the best players, but you also know it's your job as an educator to help all the kids find their potential, regardless of their reputation. And in this tale, shared with us by author Ira Brooker, a good reputation is something that high schooler Teddy Milligan doesn't have. Although it soon becomes clear that when he takes up the sport of basketball, he's willing to stick with it. Performing this tale with me are Matthew Bradford, Jesse Cornett, Dan Zapula, Mick Wingert, and Mike Delgadio. So we can admire Teddy's attachment to the sport, but only when he's playing on the home court.
We were right in the middle of what looked like a nice third quarter comeback against Collinsville. The guards working the ball around the arc when the ref blew the whistle. Three seconds in the lane. Dang it, Teddy. Get out of the lane. I leapt up from my folding chair and glared at my center, his right foot planted squarely just inside the paint. Coach, I can't. I exhaled my frustration noisily. I'd been working with this kid all season to get the three-second rule through his head, but somehow he just could not grasp the concept that if he stood under the hoop for more than three seconds in a row, it meant a turnover for our team. Eric Polderman shook his head, handed the ball to the ref, and started stalking down to the opposite end of the court. All of the other players followed except for Teddy. Teddy stayed right where he was. That was enough for me. I called down the bench. Nick, you're in. Get Teddy out of there. Nick Carlson bounced out of his seat, flashed his jersey at the scorekeeper, and trotted onto the court. Teddy, sub! Still, Teddy stayed stationary. Coach, I can't move. I'm, I don't know, I'm stuck. He groaned, staring down at his foot. The refs were ready for the inbounds, but now they looked over at me. Oh, for the love of God, Jesus, fuck, ugh. Time out. The whistle blew again, and I strode onto the court and over to Teddy. What's happening, kid? You hurt? Teddy looked up at me, his face a mask of panic that took me off guard. No, I, I mean, I don't know. I just, I can't move my foot, coach. I looked down at the floor. Teddy's size 14 Reebok was planted exactly where it had been when the ref blew the whistle. His calf muscles were visibly straining with effort. I turned to the nearest referee. Hey, we have an injury here. Mark, come take a look, huh? The school trainer nodded and climbed down from his seat in the second row, groaning audibly as he shifted his considerable bulk. The kids and parents in the stands were buzzing as Mark and I stepped close to Teddy. Mark reached down and put a hand on Teddy's calf muscle. <sighs> you feeling pain? No, I'm not hurry. It's just like, like my foot stuck to the floor. Mark arched an eyebrow but nodded. Okay, try to lift your leg up for me. I am. I'm telling you, I'm trying to move my foot, but it just won't move. Mark glanced up at me. I shrugged in confusion. Take it easy, Teddy. You probably pulled something or got a bad cramp. That's all. You're going to be okay. Mark had his hands on Teddy's ankle now, his fingers moving all around it in what looked like some kind of massage. Let's get the kid off the court, Mark. Mark looked up at me with the same worried expression I'd seen from Teddy. Coach, he's right. Uh, this foot is stuck here solid. If I'm being completely honest, Teddy Milligan probably shouldn't have been on the court. He certainly didn't belong in the starting lineup. The kid was raw, inexperienced, and not especially bright. But he was also six foot seven and 250 pounds. On a team where the next closest thing I had to a genuine big man was Nick Carlson at 6'2", 175, Teddy's flesh got him places his spirit couldn't. Heck, the kid was only a sophomore. His skills and coordination were bound to improve, and there was a solid chance he'd tack on a few more inches before he finished growing. When you're coaching a 2-8 and eight high school basketball team with precious few rising stars waiting in the wings, 
Sometimes you take a gamble and toss a lumbering giant of a 15-year-old out on the court before he's ready. As Mark and I tried to figure out what to do with Teddy's foot, I saw Coach Rich from Collinsville make his way across the court, accompanied by one of the refs, the young blonde one with the perpetual smirk. Everything all right over here, fellas? I couldn't stand the guy, but you gotta stay professional. I started to reply, but Teddy cut me off. I can't move my foot. I, I don't know what's happening, but I'm, I'm getting scared. His foot stuck to the floor somehow. I spoke directly to the ref, ignoring Rich as best I could. Mark was still massaging Teddy's tendons, trying to restore feeling or something like that. Coach Rich responded anyway. Well, have you tried just taking his foot out of the shoe? Mark and I looked at each other sheepishly. Okay, Teddy. Mark's going to untie your shoe and you're going to lift your foot out of it nice and slowly. Got it? Coach, I don't think you can. As Mark reached for the laces of his Reebok, Teddy let out a sudden gasp. Pulling. Feels like someone's pulling down on my foot. Mark's fingers moved nervously around the double-knotted laces, trying in vain to get them undone. Suddenly, Teddy's whimpering peeked into a high-pitched shriek. I was watching his writhing face when I heard a crisp snap, followed by another and another. Mark yelped, scuttling backwards across the hardwood. Jesus Christ, the kid's ankle just shattered. My wife and I moved to town at the start of the school year. I'd had a good job coaching basketball at a big school outside of Milwaukee. The kids were mostly good boys, but the constant back and forth with overbearing parents and clueless administrators wore me down after a few years. When a coaching position opened up in a little town on the other side of the state, we jumped on it. It seemed like a lot less stress and a chance to really make an impact on some kids who might not get a lot of chances in life. When Teddy walked into the gym on our first day of tryouts, my assistant coach, Alan, warned me not to get too attached. Nice kid, big kid, got a lot of potential. But when you get right down to it, he's a milligan. Even if he manages to make it through school without getting arrested or hooked on meth, you're going to lose him to academic probation at some point. As a newcomer to the town and the program, I didn't know much about the Milligan family's reputation, but I knew exactly what Alan was saying. Every small town has a family or two that fits the same profile. Petty criminals, mostly harmless, but notorious just the same for being constantly in trouble with the law or their neighbors or the bank, or whoever else is in arm's reach that they can manage to piss off. The type of folks where you see a headline in the local paper about somebody getting busted for his fifth DUI or domestic violence charge, and you scan the article until you spot the name Milligan, and you shake your head and say, yep, sounds about right. So even though I didn't know this particular family, I've known their equivalents all my life. I knew Alan's assessment was probably spot on, but heck, I wasn't going to chase the biggest kid in school off the court without giving him a shot. And wouldn't you know it, Teddy kept showing up for practice and even showed some signs of knowing what the hell to do with a basketball. He wasn't a smart kid by any means, but he listened well and tried his damnedest to do the things I told him to. Any coach will tell you a teachable kid with a little raw talent is worth two hot-headed sharpshooters. 
By the time the season started, Teddy was locked in as our starting center. I didn't see any all-conference honors in his future, but as a big man on a bad team, he was right where he needed to be. All around me, I heard the gym erupt into chaos. Kids screaming in the stands, players running up for a closer look, then scampering away in horror. Refs and school administrators barking panicked orders. I kept my eyes glued on Teddy. He was staring down at his ankle, now a bloody mess that sheared away from his shoe at a 45-degree angle. It was hard to make out anything specific through the wash of blood, but I could see several jagged white shards that had to be severed bone. It hurts. He was somehow still standing, foot still planted in the lane even as his ankle splintered beneath him. He looked me square in the eye. Can you get me out of here? It hurts. You're gonna be fine, Ted. I reached out to pat his sweaty shoulder, then turned back around. Mark, get the kid off the floor. And Alan! My assistant was sitting shell-shocked and white-faced beside the scorer's table. Clear the gym, now! Alan lurched into motion, turning to holler directions to the frantic crowd. I turned back to Teddy, trying not to stare at the bloody pulp of his lower leg. Coach Rich came stalking across the court, clearly pissed that we were delaying his blowout. What's the idea of clearing the gym? His words trailed off as he finally caught sight of Teddy. Jesus. Jesus Christ. Uh, just, just, just hold tight, Teddy. I'm, I'm gonna try your shoe again. Mark crouched down on the hardwood, glancing up at me as he reached for Teddy's Reebok with a shaky hand. As soon as his fingers touched the laces, a harsh grinding sound reverberated through the gym, and Teddy howled with pain as his leg buckled in on itself, sending a thick mist of blood across all of us assembled. Coach Rich turned aside and vomited intensely on the court. Mark scrambled backwards again. God damn it, God damn it, God damn it! I, I'm not touching it! I'm not touching his foot again! Teddy's eyes had started to roll back in his head even as he managed to somehow stay standing in the lane. I clasped his shoulders and shook him until he was able to focus again. Teddy, you've got to help us. We don't know why your leg is doing this. Do you have any idea what's going on? Teddy blinked at me through glazed eyes. I didn't... didn't get out of the lane. Somebody's called 911 already, right? Mark dug out his phone and began dialing immediately. Behind us, I could hear sobbing, both from the stands and from my players, as the school security guard tried to shoo everyone non-essential out of the gym. I grasped Teddy's hand in mine. You're hurt, Teddy. You're hurt pretty bad. I won't lie to you. But we're going to get you out of this, and you're going to be okay. You trust me, right? Right? I watched his face, trying to get a fix on his eyes as beads of sweat broke out along his forehead. Teddy. Teddy. His eyes slowly slid into focus and stared back at mine. You're the guy, Teddy, right? You're the guy. He managed a thin smile. I felt his weight shift to the right. The bones just wouldn't stop breaking. 
A few nights after the team's first practice, I made a detour from my usual route home to stop by the liquor store for a bottle of Makers. It was a snowy night with a below-zero wind chill, the type of night where I make sure my bourbon supply is fully loaded. On my way out of the store, I spotted a familiar figure hulking up the opposite sidewalk, Teddy Milligan. I called him over. He was wearing just a blue hoodie, despite the cold. Said he didn't have a ride, so he was just going to walk home. Of course, I told him to get in the car. That was the first time I had a real talk with Teddy. There was a strange rhythm to his conversation, casual and direct, but also guarded. I gave him rides a couple of nights a week after that, got to know him a little better before dropping him at his home, a visibly crumbling ranch house with car parts scattered across the lawn. Turned out his mom couldn't pick him up from practice because she'd just started working the overnight shift out at the new Rhinepack plant, the one two towns over that they shuttled workers to every night. His dad was doing a year at Black River for aggravated assaults, broke a guy's eye socket with a Michelob bottle in a bar fight at the Taj Mahal Tavern last winter. But it didn't sound like he was the type to be front and center for his kids' events anyway. Teddy wasn't too worried about his dad. He said he had a couple of cousins and an uncle in the same prison, so at least he wasn't all alone. When I told Alan about that conversation the next day, he just nodded like it was all old news. That sounds about right. Leopard can't change its spots. Oh, that seems unfair. Teddy's just a kid. He doesn't even have spots to change yet. Alan gave me a look that seemed somewhere close to pity. Look, coach, I'm happy you're here. But you gotta remember you're not in the city anymore. You screw something up in the city, people get mad for a few days, and then something new comes along to distract them, and they forget about it. You screw something up in a town as small as this... It's going to be the only thing anybody here thinks about when they hear your name, and they'll carry that hard feeling until the day you die. Make too many waves around here, and this town will swallow you right up. Mark, we've got to get him off the court! The gym had been mostly cleared now, just a circle of us left looking on helplessly as the pool of blood spread across the hardwood. Me, Mark, our team, the two refs, and a couple of teachers who'd been watching the game. The kids were mostly quiet, obviously terrified. A couple of them had started crying. Mark just stared at Teddy, ashen-faced and uncomprehending. He seemed to have gone into shock. I turned to Nick Carlson and Mike Santiago, the two kids closest to me. Come on, grab onto his shoulders. Let's drag him out of here. Teddy made a sort of humming noise, either to try to calm himself or just because his brain had stopped processing what the hell was going on. I stepped behind him and grabbed his left arm just below the shoulder, finding a grip on his sweaty underarm. Mike Santiago did the same to the right. Okay, ready? Pull! We both commenced to tugging at Teddy's torso. I was pulling with all my might, but it didn't seem to be doing any good. The thought flashed through my head that even if we pulled until his legs snapped clean off, it would be worth it to get him the hell off the floor. Coach, coach, it's not gonna work. It's just pulling me down further. I stopped tugging and looked down at Teddy's crumpled leg. 
I let out a gasp despite myself. He was right. He was being pulled down. His foot had disappeared entirely into the hardwood as if the court was sucking him under like quicksand. Teddy looked up at me blankly. My jaw moved for a few seconds before I had to look away. But uh, maybe we could saw the floor away around his foot. I glanced around at everyone gathered and got nothing but helpless stares in return. When are the goddamn paramedics getting here? You could call it an experiment, me giving a kid like Teddy a shot at the team. Truth be told, though, recruiting the biggest kid in school to play basketball for you isn't exactly betting the farm in Atlantic City. Still, if it was an experiment, it was looking like a successful one. Not only was Teddy developing into a reasonable imitation of a basketball player, he was showing signs of life all around. His teachers told me his grades had made a noticeable upturn since he started playing ball. He was getting invited out to parties and social events, and not just because he had a half dozen grown cousins who would have bought beer for him if he asked. I tried not to get too closely involved because I know how easy it is for a hard luck kid to get spooked once things started turning his way. And it wasn't like this was a miracle transformation or anything. Teddy Milligan was never going to be four-year university material, but I'd started planting some seeds about community college or tech school. He liked drawing, mostly sketches of rap album covers, but pretty well done. And one of the few things his dad ever bothered to teach him was how to keep a car engine running long past its expiration date. I'd been subtly trying to let him know he had some options after high school. Coach, coach, it's pulling again. His teammate circled around, wanting to help, but having no idea how. Matt Schick put a hand on Teddy's shoulder and started to pray out loud. Teddy didn't seem to take any more notice than anybody else. Alan sidled up beside me. Has anyone called his mother? I would want to know if my son was... was injured. I shook my head. No, no, she, she works night at the packing plant over in Haney Falls. It'd take at least half an hour before anyone could get her here, but yes, go call them. I turned back to Teddy just as the sharpest crack yet rang through the gym. His leg had disappeared up to the knee in the floor, his free leg sprawling out at a perpendicular angle on the hardwood, awash with a thick froth of blood and bone fragments. His dull brown eyes were glazed with pain. Matt Schick jumped back at the sound of Teddy's tibia splitting and looked like he might vomit, but quickly regained his composure and resumed his prayer from a safe distance. Gosh... I knelt down and made myself look him in the eye. Teddy, I'm here. We're doing what we can. We're gonna get you out of here. Teddy shook his head slightly, a dribble of saliva flopping from his lip. Coach, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the three seconds. Crying hadn't even presented itself as an option up to that point, but now there was no stopping it. I squeezed Teddy's hand and sobbed as I felt his big body twisting, heard the bones bending and breaking beneath him, felt the hot spray pelt my jacket when the bone shards finally pierced his femoral artery, watching his eyes flicker and twitch as the life ebbed out of him, his big hand clamped around mine 
I barely registered that he was crushing my fingers almost to the point of breaking. Once Teddy was dead, the process seemed to speed up. The paramedics finally stepped into the gym in time to see his leg disappear into the wood, his limp body folding on itself like a stuffed animal in a washing machine. His other leg flipped straight up in the air as his torso slithered down, down into whatever sucking void had a hold of the kid. The prayers and screams and sobs all died away as we all just stood back and watched, horrified as big, dead Teddy was swallowed up by the gymnasium floor. The white rubber toe of his Reebok was the last thing we saw of him, slipping away through the pool of blood that itself quickly drained away into the unknown. Soon there was no sign that Teddy Milligan had ever been there, not so much as a scratch in the hardwood. The gym was silent for a long moment. Even the late arriving paramedics had ignored their training and froze in place, bearing witness to something that plainly demanded an awful reverence. Finally, Mark spoke up whispering from behind my shoulder. Coach, what did we just see? What are we going to do about this? What are we going to tell his mother? I didn't have an answer. I looked to Alan, but he just stood there with his head in his hands. I told you. I told you this town will swallow you up. I glanced around at the circle of horrified faces and felt an uncontrollable urge to run, to get as far away from this gym and this school and any traces of Teddy as I possibly could. I turned away from Mark and tried to take a step toward the locker room, but I couldn't move. I tried again to lift my legs, to will myself into movement, but it was no use. My right foot was frozen in place, held tight to the hardwood as sure as if it was nailed there. Somewhere deep beneath me, I felt something beginning to tug. It's normally rude to read other people's correspondence, but in this case it might be beneficial to hear what one man has to say to his husband. You see, in this note there are some alarming details, ones that maybe even the recipient himself doesn't know. And in this tale, shared with us by author Scott Savino, they range from things such as chanting to sleepwalking to violent outbursts. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, and Jeff Clement. So let's take a look into the private lives of a couple and indulge ourselves in reading a letter to my husband, Jack. Dear Jack, 
I am not coming back. Please don't try to find me. I had so many things that I wanted to say to you, but I, I couldn't, for obvious reasons. I didn't leave this note at the house, which was for obvious reasons also. I hope that one of your friends finds this somehow and gets it to you. I left. I left because I'm afraid of you. I never thought I'd say something like that. You're the best and worst thing that has ever happened to me. It wasn't until recently that each day I stayed, I felt as though I was tempting fate. Last night was the final straw. I suppose it was luck that kept me blind to the danger for so long. You showed me last night that danger only needs to be lucky once. I can still recall the day we met. The sky was clear. That drizzle that came from nowhere and briefly became a deluge. A summer shower of hard, pregnant drops crashing down around us melted into mist upon the pavement as they sizzled in the summer sun. You wore those mirrored sunglasses. Your face was twisted in confusion with your head cocked, angled distastefully towards the sky. Excuse me. I darted past in a sprint, taking shelter under an awning. I thought that you must have needed directions or something. I told you to come and stand with me under the awning and out of the rain. You took off your sunglasses and, sniffing the air, correctly recognized my cologne. You told me it was one of your favorites. I thought you had pretty eyes, and I told you so. They were the strangest color of green and gray. We talked for a while, and I thought that of all the people that I might have come across that day, our meeting and the way that we did was so singular and serendipitous. I knew in those moments we were meant to meet. You suggested we go for coffee, and being free that afternoon, I accepted. You asked your phone for directions to the nearest spot. Six years, and the image of that day is just as vivid to me as if I'd just seen it in a movie. It took another two years to convince me to bite the bullet, to give up my rent-controlled apartment, and to come live with you. We were married shortly after that. The day I stood with you and shared our vows was the happiest day of my life. I promise to love you forever, in sickness and health, in good times and bad. You led me from the darkness, and now I'm here at your side. You were the light of my life, Scott. I can still remember that vividly as well. The vows you wrote were beautiful. We were soulmates, and it was all thanks to that afternoon and that unexpected summer rain. Things were good between us. They were more than good for a long, long time. This was supposed to be the rest of our lives. I never dreamed I'd meet someone like you, Jack. I'm not sure what happened. I'm not sure what's come over you. I'm not sure when you began to change. I noticed the sleepwalking last week, but I don't know how long it went on before that. I couldn't have imagined how things would escalate from finding you staring blankly into the refrigerator to trying to kill me in just a matter of days. I don't even know why I'm writing this. I should just follow through with what I've decided and never look back. It isn't an easy decision. It's the hardest of my life, actually. I think I owe this letter to you. You deserve an explanation. 
I really don't think you have any idea, like you've said, about the things you've been doing. Maybe it's the antidepressants. The doctor warned you there might be side effects. He said you might not be able to get it up, but that didn't happen. No. <laughs> Instead, during the day you began to feel dead on your feet, and at night you couldn't lie still. I began to wake every time you stirred, and you seemed to leave the bed every night. That first night, I dismissed all this as a weird dream. A week ago, you left the bed, and I found myself in that warm state halfway between sleeping and awake. The mattress raised around me as you sat up and stood. Though there wasn't any light, I knew you were crossing the room. I could feel it happening, but you were somehow completely and utterly soundless doing it. Even in the space just before the door, where the floorboards creak, there was nothing. The square of light as you opened the door revealed your silhouette, and as you closed it behind you, the hinges didn't squeak, and the latch gave no signal before the room was black again, bathed in unnerving, brooding silence. It was so thick around me, I might have sworn I wasn't even in our bed anymore. It was only at the feeling of the warmth of your pillow after you'd gone and breathing the scent of your sweat that I knew I hadn't gone anywhere at all. Slowly, I began to hear something quiet, like a sort of ethereal static, the sound of radio waves flickering between stations. But from what radio? With all our podcasts and streamings, I, c I couldn't even remember the last time I'd seen a radio, much less listened to one. I don't even think we own one. But I know what I heard. As the density and volume grew, I heard it shifting from left to right. My initial thought was that it originated inside my skull. It was coming from inside of me, Jack. I was horrified, and the sound just grew to an endless drone, and before I knew it, I was waking up to the sound of my alarm. I opened my eyes and could hear your voice as you translated something to French in your office. The sky outside our window was blushing in the dawn of what looked to be a chilly day. And I brushed off the whole thing for a while and got ready for work. You were really involved in what you were doing, and you didn't even hear me over the recording that chittered from your headphones as I came in and lightly touched your shoulder. You smiled, and I felt reassured as you made your hands into the shape of a heart so I could see. I kissed you on your cheek and headed out. I got into my car and adjusted my seat forward. It was such an innocuous thing. I just didn't catch it at the time. Today, when it happened again, I realized I've been having to adjust my seat on most mornings, that it had been set too far back. It feels so stupid to ask, the idea that you've been coming and going for... for how long? For this whole time? Have you been taking my car in the middle of the night? It's absolutely absurd. You wouldn't be. The first time I noticed any of this, I went through that day trying to convince myself I was, I was being paranoid, like some sort of jealous boyfriend. I told myself everything was fine. That evening, I came home and you'd ordered a pizza. It was there waiting for me. You were knitting something with the news going on in the background, and as I entered, you called out to Alexa to pause. Okay, 
You asked me about my day. We went to bed and you kissed my forehead right before I turned off the light. Nothing about the way we lived had changed. I was sure I had imagined it all. Until I felt you leave the bed again. That droning sound filled the vacuum you left behind and replaced all of the natural noises of the house creaking in the night wind. It blotted out the ticking of the clock on the wall. That sound was the only thing then. It felt almost sentient, alive. Whatever it was took your place in the room. I don't know what strange things you might have done that night. Before I could question things enough to react, it forced me back to sleep. And again, I awoke in the morning. This happened the next night, and then the next, and finally, after a few days of this, I decided I had to know what was going on for sure. So I had a cup of coffee just before we turned in, and by the grace of caffeine and presence of will, I managed to stay awake. I managed to wait. I found myself unable to sit up at first, but after you'd been gone a few minutes, I did it. I felt my body working against me as I struggled to stand. Keeping my eyes open seemed impossible, but I did that too. Bleary-eyed and scratching at my beard, I found you in the kitchen. The refrigerator door was open and you were sitting on the floor, bathed in the blue light of it as the frost billowed out and gathered down by your naked, outstretched feet. The drone of the motor was barely audible over that awful electronic sound bouncing, bound inside my skull. I'll admit, before this moment, I questioned your fidelity. I wondered about you leaving. What I saw only raised more questions. I thought I was going crazy. Slowly, the sound of the radio waves subsided, and I realized you were speaking. Were you translating something for work? No, that didn't make any sense. You didn't have your recorder, and in my haze, it took a moment to realize that there wasn't any audio to translate inside the refrigerator, Jack. It was illogical. I couldn't understand what you were saying. It was bizarre to see you there, chanting quietly to yourself on the kitchen floor. You were in a trance, like dreaming, muttering over and over in the dark. The first night I heard it, it was just gibberish, a string of foreign words I couldn't make sense of. I made to pick you up by your shoulders, but you wouldn't budge. I closed the refrigerator door, and the chanting ended abruptly. When I turned to make another attempt at lifting you up, you were already standing. Jack... You slapped me right across the face. If I hadn't believed you were having some sort of nightmare, I would have left you right then and there. We've had arguments, all couples do, but you've never even dreamed of laying your hands on me. I was shocked. But slowly you seemed to come to your senses then, shaking the sting from your hand. I just stared at you by the light of the kitchen window, not knowing what to say there in the dark. Honey, did did I just hit you? I told you that you had. We both went back to bed thinking you must have been sleepwalking or having a weird dream. You wouldn't stop apologizing, even after I told you it was fine. I think you must have been pretty broken up by it. 
dreaming was the only explanation that made any sense at all. When I woke up, you were already awake before me. The house was chilly and heat swirled from your coffee. You kept apologizing between breaths as you blew to cool it. I forgave you. Over and over. I had. I kept the strange auditory hallucinating to myself. Your sincerity was real and reassuring. I still believe you. I don't think you have any idea or control over what you'd been doing any of those nights. But the following night, when I woke up, you were gone from the bed again. Your spot was all but drained of its warmth. You must have left the bed hours ago. There was no true way for me to tell. This time, the noises that I knew weren't really there were softer. The sound didn't seem to have as much control over me as it had in previous nights, but I still felt its ominous pull trying to lull me back to dreaming and overpower me. It was easier to get out of bed, and it began to fade entirely as I reached the bedroom door. There was a glow coming from the gap at the foot of it. It flickered and shifted. The floorboards creaked underfoot, and the hinges squeaked their usual squeak as I opened it and slowly made my way down the hall. As I came towards the living room, the sound of static seemed to return slowly, growing with each step. But it was different now. It was real. It wasn't coming from inside of me. It was coming from the TV. We've had everything digital for so long that I didn't even know there were channels that still did that. You sat on the coffee table facing the screen. You were a black shadow outlined in flecks of digital snow. And again, I heard you muttering, chanting those same words as you had the night before. Something about it all was so unnerving and so surreal that I pinched myself, hoping it was a dream. Time passed slowly as I stood, frozen in place, watching you. I don't know how long. The sound of static filled the room with confusion, and it was difficult to approach you. Jack, honey, are you okay? But you didn't reply. You didn't even turn your head in my direction. I don't think you even heard me until I walked over and turned the TV off. I should have learned from the previous night, but I hadn't. This time, you hit me much worse. <sighs> Once in my diaphragm, and another swing connected on my nose with a sickening crunch. I screamed at you as blood began pouring out. I fell to the floor. Where am I? Fuck you! I was pinching my nose. From my position at your feet, I told you what happened. I told you I wasn't going to try and help you next time. I'd let you pray to the fridge or the TV or both of the fucking bathroom toilets if I didn't have to get hit or listen to you apologize for hitting me. You cried when I told you you had to spend the night on the couch. I didn't want you near me. This was all so frustrating because you've never hit me before and the mystery of it was wearing on me. Worst of all, I didn't understand the French you'd been sleeplessly slurring well enough to repeat it back to you. You promised to make an appointment in the morning to see someone about your nightmares and sonambulating and dream beatings. That was two nights ago. Jack, I've already said it, but you are the best and worst thing that's ever happened to me. This past week has been pretty terrible. But last night was the worst.
you tried to kill me. I don't know if you ever made that appointment. I reminded you of it yesterday morning. I feel so lost right now, and I can't even begin to explain myself. You have to understand how hard the decision not to come back home has been for me to make. I believe you when you tell me that you have no idea what's going on, but I almost died. I hope someone can help you, but I can't do this anymore. I woke up just like I had all the other nights when you weren't there. This time was different. I'd asked you to stay on the couch again last night and didn't expect you to be there. I heard the buzzing again, but it was more of a nuisance than anything else now, quiet and drained of its power over me. I sat up easily and unplugged my phone and turned on the camera. Every time I'd heard this sound, it had been connected with your behavior. I was determined to record it so I could play it back and you could tell me what you were saying. I still can't believe I spent all these years married to a professional translator and I haven't picked up any French at all. Far off, I could hear your voice again, so I pressed record. I didn't realize you were in the room. You sounded so far away. I turned on the light and saw you standing there in the corner. Blood was dripping down your cheeks and there were dark holes in your face. But the holes weren't empty. Clouds of darkness swirled in the place where your eyes should have been. Like the lights of a storm-ravaged sky, the black forms swirling within shone intermittently, alight with impulse and electricity. There was a knife in your hand, and you just kept chanting. Couleur, peux-tu les voir? Les couleurs, peux-tu les voir? Peux-tu les voir? Over and over again, those words came from you, and also not from you, as they merged with the steadily growing sound of static that filled my head. Then you began speaking to me in English. It said I had to take them out, so I did. You were smiling as you lolled your head around in tiny circles. Can you hear it too, honey? Isn't it beautiful? Jack? Shh, 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 shh. You just have to listen. You can hear it if you listen closer. It will say what you need to hear. Just listen. It told me I could see all of them. My eyes were just in the way. I was quietly crying then. Oh God, Jack, what's happened to you? Bleu, rouge, vert, jaune. Noir, noir, noir. Jack, what are you... Shut up! Don't you ever just shut the fuck up! You raised the knife and charged at me, jumping from a standing position to land with both feet on the bed. You would have put that knife straight through my head if my reflexes hadn't rolled me from my spot and onto the floor. I shot through the door and ran. I could hear you saying those words in French again behind me. I toppled the chair in the hall right into your path. But somehow you knew and sprang over it like you were doing the 100-meter hurdles. 
I knocked over the side table in the living room, and that didn't manage to slow you either. The television was on and the refrigerator was open, and each time, somehow you were able to avoid whatever I threw in your path and spring over it, not faltering once, like a, like a predator chasing prey. I grabbed my keys from where I keep them on the table by the door. The mirror above was smeared with blood. Your blood. Your eyes were there on the table next to the spoon you must have dug them out with. Green and gray, they stared up at me from the table, pointing directly at me. For the first time, I could feel them really piercing through me. All the while, you were gaining and muttering those awful words. You barely sounded winded by the time I made it to my car and peeled out of our driveway. The seat was wrong again, but I didn't fix it until I was miles away. I just kept hearing those words over and over through my tears as I sat there. My phone was still recording everything. It had been going for almost 10 minutes. I decided to watch the playback then and there, hoping it would tell me something, explain anything about what was going on. I've been watching this video over and over again for hours. I looked it up, word by word. That's why I'm not coming back. Please don't try to find me. I'm begging you. I've managed to translate it with an app. Colors. Can you see them? The colors. Can you see them? Can you see them? Can you see them? That's all you were saying over and over again every time. Jack, I can't come back. I do believe you are not in control of this, whatever it is. But I can't do it. There's too much risk. I do hope someone finds this and reads it to you so you have an explanation. You deserve that. There's just... There's just a few things I don't understand. I don't understand where you've been taking my car. I know that's a crazy thing to say. More importantly, I don't know how. How could you take my car? I don't understand how you were able to avoid all the furniture that I tipped over. Is it because your entire life was already so practiced at avoiding things you couldn't see? It was unnatural, even for someone with as much practice as you have. How could you keep up with me and not trip over any of it at all? You once told me you didn't even have a clear idea of what colors were. You said that most people born blind didn't. You told me that people explain them to you many times, but without being able to see them yourself, the concept was too abstract. It relied too much on having sight. Did that static show you something? What could you have possibly seen? I can't come back. I'm too afraid. This is the hardest decision I've ever made. I still love you, and I always will. I'm sorry.
In our final tale, we join Melody, a teenage girl who's opted to stay with her extended family while her parents are away. She's excited to get to know her relatives, but in this tale, shared with us by author Jennifer Winters, the behavior of Melody's younger cousin becomes cause for concern. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Addison Peacock, Jeff Clement, Aaron Lillis, Atticus Jackson, and Graham Rowett. So, sure, kids can act out and say inappropriate things, but it's a little more than that with this obnoxious spawn by the name of Billy Ray. gunshot cracked and echoed somewhere in the woods behind my uncle's house. Without thought or, or hesitation, I jumped out of the backyard swing where I'd been sitting with my cousin Janie and ran as fast as I could to the house, over the back porch and slamming the screen door behind me. Once I was safely inside, I crouched down behind the kitchen counter, expecting Janie to follow close behind. She didn't. Heartbeat turned up to eleven. I slowly raised myself up enough to peek out of the window over the kitchen sink. Janie was leaned over, clutching her stomach. As I watched, she slowly fell forward out of the swing, doing a slow roll onto her back, still clenching her stomach. Her, her face was a rigid grimace of agony. Janie? I forgot my fear for a moment and ran out the back door towards my cousin, who was now keening. No, not keening, I realized. She was rolling on the ground laughing. Janie? You are such a city girl. But, 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 but someone is shooting. Suddenly remembering the imminent danger we faced, I stiffened, squinting and quickly surveying the surrounding woods and small outbuildings for the sniper. Janie got to her feet, brushing leaves and bit of grass off of her butt and shoulders. Mel, it's just someone shooting in the woods. It happens all the time. You're in Mississippi now. Hearing gunshots isn't a big deal. For probably the first time in my life, I was speechless. Having lived in Midtown Houston my whole life, I couldn't wrap my brain around such a nonchalant reaction to gunshots. <laughs> Janie, still laughing, ran towards the house announcing that my hysterical reaction to the gunshots made her have to pee. A voice piped up from behind me. Happens all the time. I turned to see Billy Ray standing by the sweet gum tree, dark hair tousled, grinning his snaggletooth grin. He was barefoot and wearing a Houston Dynamo soccer kit. Hey, whoa, Billy Ray. You're wearing the right jersey. The Dynamos are my team. I had only just met the baby of the family, as I guessed Billy Ray to be about eight years old. I was 17 and Janie was only 15. Her brother James was 13. I was visiting with them and my Aunt Linda and Uncle Eddie while my parents were doing a week-long hike through Colombia's Sierra Nevada to the Ciudad Perdida. The trek would consist of hiking for most of the day and sleeping in huts with no plumbing and questionable drinking water, so I was overjoyed when Aunt Linda suggested that I spend some time with my Mississippi relatives instead of getting in touch with the spirits of Gaia in Colombia. 
My parents were planning on joining us in a couple of weeks after the hiking trip and a week to recover and deworm, I guessed. Our moms were sisters and, while friendly, weren't particularly close. Janie and I had previously met in person only once when she came to visit my family in Houston a few years earlier. We had hit it off despite our age difference and had been pen pals ever since. Real pen pals, writing real letters on sheets of dead trees. She'd never mentioned her youngest brother in letters, and I couldn't remember my mom mentioning him, so meeting Billy Ray when I'd arrived earlier that day was a surprise. He had been waiting for me when I went to put my suitcase away in the room that I'd share with Janie. He'd been hiding under the extra twin bed where I was to sleep during my visit and gave himself away with a falsetto giggle. <laughs> I'd peeked under the bed and been greeted by that snaggly grin. Hey, I'm Melody, but everyone calls me Mel. What's your name? Enormous Johnson. He slithered out from under the bed and ran out the door. He grabbed the doorknob on his way out, slamming the door three times and leaving it closed. I tried to follow him, but I couldn't get the door to open. It wasn't locked, but jammed. I called for Janie, who pulled on the other Janie. side of the door until it came open. Janie! Dang it, Billy Ray, cut the crap! After an amazing, mostly fried lunch prepared by my aunt and uncle, Janie, James, and I had cleaned the kitchen. When all the dishes were done, James took off through the woods on a shortcut to his best friend's house, and Janie and I had gone out to the backyard swing to talk. Before the sniper incident, I had learned that there was no Wi-Fi password, because there was no Wi-Fi. Not only was there no Wi-Fi, there wasn't any cell coverage. Look up rural in a dictionary, and you'll see a picture of my Uncle Eddie and Aunt Linda's house. The road to the house was legit gravel, with no streetlights or shoulders, just woods crowding up against the graded dirt and rock. I was able to laugh about the gunshot after a couple of glasses of syrupy sweet tea in the kitchen with Janie. She asked me what I wanted to do the rest of the day, and I told her that I couldn't think of a thing. Hey, I know. You like scary books. You want to go see a spooky graveyard? I'm always up for a good graveyard. It's out back behind the house. She set our glasses in the sink. Wiping her hands on her shorts, she took a couple of steps towards the hallway. Mama, me and Mel are going to the graveyard. Y'all be careful, look out for snakes and ticks. With that, we headed out back. The house looked like houses my parents and I find online to stay in for vacation. It was more like a cabin. It had a big back porch and a large backyard with a neat veggie and herb garden. Towards the back, beyond a couple of small outbuildings, there was a small pond that my Uncle Eddie kept stocked with catfish. Janie pointed everything out as we walked back through the yard towards the woods. Just past the tree line of the woods, there was a cute little creek. Janie walked to a spot where it was barely a trickle. My house is so haunted. <laughs> she gracefully leapt across the creek. I followed her, although not as gracefully. Aunt Linda's warning about snakes and ticks made me feel like I had to keep looking in all directions at all times. Really? What makes it haunted? I'm gonna let you see for yourself. Janie motioned for me to follow her deeper into the woods, a wry grin forming on her face. 
Just then, I heard a small hissing sound as the tongue of a snake flickered against the back of my bare calf. I squealed and jumped forward, tripping on my own feet and landing on my hands, hard. A small twig punctured the soft flesh of one of my palms as I made contact with the ground. Mel? You okay? Janie leaned down to help me up. As she did, I heard Billy Ray's giggle and caught sight of him. He was running towards the clearing that formed the backyard with a long green weed in his hand. <sighs> Billy Ray just pranked me? He made me think that a snake was licking my leg. Billy Ray, you stop it! I got back to my feet and surveyed the damage to my palm. Janie led me onto what might have once been a path. He can be a pill. He does stuff like that all the time. Does your mom get onto him about it? No. Wouldn't do any good. He does some funny stuff, too. A little turd. I inwardly rolled my eyes, thinking of other babies in the family I'd known who all had gotten away with murder. As it turned out, the graveyard was pretty awesome. It wasn't too far into the woods, and there were only about four or five headstones. Janie explained that it was a family graveyard and had been put there by the folks who had sold Aunt Linda and Uncle Eddie the property. So, how old is your house? I assumed that it was old, if it were haunted. She told me that her parents had built the house they lived in. There had been an old house on the property, but not where their house sat. We hung out at the little graveyard for a while, trying to read the headstones and speculating as to what the people buried there had been like. All of them had lived to be in their 60s or 70s, and I told Janie that it was nice that no children were buried there. After we'd had our fill of the cemetery, we explored the woods a bit more. They were so green and pretty, with shafts of sunlight sneaking in here and there between the leaves. Finally, the light started getting a bit golden, and Janie said that we should head back, saying that when it got dark in the woods, it got dark. As we headed back, I realized that we were walking in a kind of sideways horseshoe path when we could get to the house more quickly by cutting straight towards the creek. Janie shook her head. Nope. Can't go that way. The old well from the house that used to be back here is still there. Daddy made a concrete cover for it, but Mama still thinks we're going to fall in. I know we wouldn't, but I want to be able to tell her that we didn't walk close to it. She freaks if we ever do. Billy Ray was suddenly running past us towards the darkening woods. He jumped up as he ran, grabbing a low, dead branch on a tree just ahead of us, loudly snapping it off and dropping it at our feet. We both stumbled a bit, but neither of us fell. Billy Ray, you do not need to go into the woods this late. Janie just laughed, gingerly pulling a long vine covered in thorns out of the path to let me pass. Billy Ray does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. All the time. We can't stop him. He rules the roost. Dinner, or supper, as my Mississippi family called it, was leftovers from lunch. I commented that I was going to gain a million pounds if I kept eating that type of food, and my uncle laughed, telling me that he'd put me to work in the garden so that I'd sweat it off. Billy Ray didn't come to the table. I figured that he'd eaten earlier and gone on to bed. When I asked, Uncle Eddie chuckled and said that he reckoned that Billy Ray would eat when he was hungry. After dinner, we played board games and I laughed so hard that my stomach hurt. My relatives were really fun. 
I even laughed at Billy Ray, who ran into the room at one point, jumped up on the table where we were all playing, and blessed us with a sour green fart. Uncle Eddie frantically waved the smell away from his face. Billy Ray, that smells like a skunk crawled up your butt and died. At which point my aunt started laughing so hard that she blew the soda she was drinking out of her nose, which made me laugh so hard I actually fell out of my chair. Later, as we watched a rerun of some old show about a mountain family, the sound of the shower drifted down the hallway. James sighed and got up off the couch. I'll go turn it off. Uncle Eddie chuckled at my confused expression. (laughs) Billy Ray's taking a shower. So why does James have to turn the water off? Billy Ray never turns off the water after he's turned it on. Billy Ray didn't join us for the rest of the show. I figured that Janie and I would stay up all night talking, but we were so tired that we were ready to sleep when we dragged ourselves to bed. Everyone yelled goodnight to each other from their bedrooms, just like that old TV show about the Mountain family. Good night, Mel. Good night, James. Good night, Janie. Good night, Mama and Daddy. Good night, kids. I decided to join in. Good night, Billy Ray. I was answered by a scream of rage from down the hallway. The abruptness and anger of the cry made me jump, and I lay there, waiting for someone to correct Billy Ray. If anyone did, I fell asleep too quickly to hear it. The next morning, we all helped in the garden. It seemed like a million weeds had come up overnight and it took the whole morning to pull them. It was actually kind of fun, although Janie said that I wouldn't like it if I had to do it all summer. The work was eased by my aunt and uncle trading sarcastic banter and bursting into song. They both taught school so they were home for the summer. I told James that it must be great to have his parents home for summer vacation and he just rolled his eyes. (laughs) Billy Ray came and went while everyone else worked usually knocking over a rake or hoe that leaned against the deer fence as soon as someone popped up. At one point, Uncle Eddie told him to stop knocking stuff over, but his command was ignored. Later, we had veggies from the garden for lunch. Billy Ray refused to come to the table. After lunch, James, Janie, and I played Dungeons & Dragons for a couple of hours. Aunt Linda and Uncle Eddie needed to do some planning for an upcoming teacher's training, so they suggested that we kids go into town for some ice cream. I had learned through Janie's letters that people in Mississippi could get their driver's license at 15, so she would drive us. We headed out to the car and Janie abruptly stopped, patting her pockets. Wait, I don't have the keys. She turned and went back into the house. After a minute or so, she stuck her head out of the window. James, come help me find the keys. James rolled his eyes at me and walked inside. I stood by the car for a minute, then drifted towards the back of the yard in the pond. Billy Ray was standing on the far side of the pond. Hey, Mel, come back here! This is so cool! He turned and ran before he finished speaking. Janie and James hadn't come back out of the house, so I drifted in the direction where Billy Ray had run. 
I caught sight of him again as he jumped the creek. Where are you taking me, Billy Ray? I jumped the creek where I'd seen him jump. It was too wide and I landed in the mud on the bank. As I pulled my foot out, my shoe stayed in the muck. Cursing, I pulled it out, getting the mess out of my hands. Oh, shit. Mail, come on! Billy Ray shouted from the thick brambles ahead. There wasn't a path. I took a few steps towards his voice, taking care not to step on anything sharp or gross with my bare foot. When Billy Ray came into view, I saw a large concrete disc on the ground beside him. The cover of the old well, I realized. Billy Ray! You need to come away from there. You know your mom doesn't want you near that well. Please don't tell me anything. Fine then, I thought. I'll have to go pick up the little turd and carry him back to the house. I tried to move towards him, but the brambles tore up my legs. You're going the wrong way. The path is there. He pointed to my right. I didn't see a path, but I was able to move in the direction where he'd pointed without getting shredded. I got you where I want you. Now I'm gonna eat you. Billy Ray watched me struggle to find a way to him. A little more to your right. Damn it. I carefully moved my bare foot to the right, my mind on camouflage snakes and giant thorns. No. Mel, stop right there. My uncle's voice suddenly smacked me in the back of the head. Don't move at all. Just stay in there until I can get you. I looked at him over my shoulder and he began moving towards me, slowly, with his arms in front like he was trying to stop someone from jumping off a bridge. Don't move at all. Uncle Eddie reached me, taking me by the shoulders. Take a baby step to the left, then a big granddaddy step straight back. Utterly confused? I did what he said. When I finished taking the step backwards, I saw what had put that panic into Uncle Eddie's eyes. I had been one step away from the gaping opening of the old well, the cover of which was on the ground next to Billy Ray, at least three yards from where I stood. I felt like my heart was in my throat and little stars blinked in my vision. (laughs) Billy Ray laughed his little boy giggle and ran through the brambles between Uncle Eddie and me and towards the house. Dumbfounded, I reached into my pocket and felt the unfamiliar shape of my cousin's keys. Not believing all that was happening, I pulled them out and held them up in front of my face. How had Billy Ray managed to get the keys into my pocket without me noticing? My uncle took a deep breath and leaned over, his hands on his knees. Then he snapped upright and smiled, although his voice shook when he spoke. You have the keys. Great. They turn up in weird places all the time. As we walked back towards the house with me trailing behind, muddy shoe in hand, my uncle caught my eye over his shoulder. Don't ever go near that well again, Mel. Despite, or maybe because of the incident, we decided not only to go to town for ice cream, but also go to a movie. Aunt Linda put some antibiotic cream on my shins and loaned me a pair of shoes. She said that I must have put the keys in my pocket and and then forgotten. I I knew better than to point the finger at Billy Ray, who was probably already in a lot of trouble for going back near the well, even though there was no way he could have uncovered it himself. 
Uncle Eddie pulled Aunt Linda aside as I left the room. We need to figure out who keeps moving that well cover. We had a great time in town. I had cell coverage there, so I caught up with texting and calling my friends in Houston. Janie kept taking the phone away from me to talk to them. She had them rolling as she turned her Mississippi draw up to 11. Some of my cousin's friends were wandering the little downtown area, and we all hung out until time for the movie. They made fun of my city-fied accent, but not in a mean way. Mostly, they were all super chill and not at all what I had expected when I imagined Mississippi teenagers. The main town square was neatly set around the looming courthouse with its big column and tree-covered grounds. We got our ice cream at an old drugstore that had a real soda fountain, where they mixed the soda water and syrup by hand. The ice cream was scooped out of the tubs of ice cream makers, and the woman who scooped mine proudly told me that they only served ice cream that they made in-house. I never knew that such a small country town could be so entertaining. The cherry on top was the movie theater, which was in a restored theater that had been on the Orpheum circuit. So cool. As we took our seats, Janie told me that both the theater and the old drugstore were haunted. I asked her why. Well, they just have to be, don't they? <laughs> we got home well after dark, happy and tired. My aunt and uncle had sandwiches ready for us, and we each gave them a review of the movie as we ate. After showering and getting ready for bed, I crouched down to look under my bed. Billy Ray wasn't there. I climbed into bed and fell asleep before Janie finished getting ready for bed. Sometime in the night, Janie and I were jolted awake by the door slamming three times. <gasps> Janie. Damn it, Billy Ray. Janie shouted from her twin bed, throwing extra pillows towards the door before laying back down. I wish you would quit doing that. All the freaking time he does that. Billy Ray, stop slamming the door. I heard my aunt tell him to do something about that, but... I never heard them actually chastise Billy Ray, who definitely should have been asleep at that hour. <sighs> so spoiled, I thought, snuggling back down into my pillow. Janie was already asleep again. The next day, we kids slept really late. It was a dark, gray day, so after we were up and about, we opted to devote the day to Dungeons & Dragons. We got bored after a few hours, James braved the drizzle and cut through the woods to his friend's house, and Janie and I decided to watch a movie on TV. As it turned out, the TV satellite system didn't work well in rainy weather, so Janie loaned me a horror novel, and we each lay down in our respective beds and opened our books. We had just gotten settled when Aunt Linda stuck her head in the door and asked us if either of us had taken the laundry out of the dryer. We both said that we hadn't, and she left shaking her head in confusion. Janie said that Billy Ray might have taken the clothes out. She said that he did that sometimes. Not all the time? Nope, just some of the time. I don't know who fell asleep first, but I woke first to the sound of fingers drumming on the footboard of my bed. I looked down and Billy Ray was pulling himself up from behind the board. He rested his chin on the footboard, grinning that crooked little grin of his. In the dark, dark woods, there was a dark, dark house. The girl walked towards it, and she heard a voice saying, I got you where I want you. 
now I'm gonna eat ya. Billy Ray continued drumming his fingers on the wood of the footboard. Yeah, Billy Ray, I know this one. She followed the voice into the dark, dark house. All through the dark, dark rooms. Down a dark, dark hallway. And into a dark, dark closet. In the closet, she saw a kid looking at a booger on his finger saying, I got you where I want you now. I'm gonna eat ya. Dude, I'm taking a nap. The little boy grin disappeared, replaced by a crooked sneer. No. That's not what happened. When she walked into the house, the door closed behind her. A man had closed it. There was another man in the house, too. They were men who liked to hurt girls. And they were very, very hungry. Billy Ray went on to tell the most gruesome story I'd ever heard. He seemed to savor each gory, degrading detail of what the men did to the girl. His mouth actually watered, the spittle spilling over his bottom lip. I opened my mouth to speak or or to try to raise Janie, but Billy Ray's story had me absolutely petrified. I could see, feel everything he described, yet I couldn't find my voice or move. The story finally drew to a close. By then, my heart was a jackhammer and my limbs were filled with ice. And then, one of the men looked at what was left of the girl, and he said, Do you know what he said, Mal? His eyes held mine. I didn't want to look in his eyes, but I was afraid to look away. Afraid to blink. As if looking away or closing my eyes for a second would open me up to some kind of horrific attack by my eight-year-old cousin. He stared at me, waiting for me to speak. I got you where I want you. I didn't want to finish the sentence. I I, I snapped back to myself and and sat up. Billy Ray, baby, that was a terrible story. Where did you hear it? Did a big kid, an adult, tell it to you? You need to tell your mama and daddy who told you that story. It's not right for you to know a story like that. Billy Ray stood upright and threw his head back, laughing that little boy laugh. (laughs) He turned and skipped out the door. As he went, he started singing. Mel, Mel got dirty drawers, blood all in her underwear. He sang over and over, all the way down the hall through the kitchen and out the back door, which he slammed so hard as to shake the house. Janie turned over in her sleep, her book falling to the floor. She mumbled, not really waking up. Billy Ray, it's getting ridiculous. At that moment, I desperately wanted to talk to my mom, to hear her voice and ask her to talk to my aunt and uncle about their obviously disturbed youngest child. But seeing that she and my dad were probably on some mountain communing with nature, far away from many phones, I had to take action myself. I put my book on the nightstand and stood, determined to rat out Billy Ray for the horrible story he had just told me. Aunt Linda should get to the bottom of it. I had taken one step when a familiar pain doubled me over. I had always had terrible cramps with my period, even fainting on a couple of occasions from unfiltered agony. My mom and doctor had begun throwing around terms like cysts and endometriosis. If this sudden pain was signaling the beginning of my period, it was a sure omen of debilitating cramps over the next few days. 
Cursing to myself, I crossed over to Janie's bed, gently shaking her awake. Janie had all the supplies that I needed. I explained to her that I had just finished my period a few days before arriving in Mississippi, so I didn't understand why I was having one now. Janie said that it could be the change in my diet or the time difference between Mississippi and Texas. Aunt Linda gave me some ibuprofen and the pain eased up somewhat. I didn't tell her about Billy Ray's disturbing story from earlier in the day. I'm glad now that I didn't. Around dinner time that night, James found the missing laundry under my bed. Uncle Eddie said that Billy Ray must have put it there. Winking at me, he told Billy Ray to cut it out, but Billy Ray ignored him and kept running around the living room. He was wearing the Houston Dynamo kit again. Hey, at least the brat had good taste in soccer teams. Billy Ray settled down after a little while, skipping down the hall and slamming the bedroom door. Three times, of course. Aunt Linda and Uncle Eddie gave each other a look, but neither of them got on to Billy Ray. Everything was quiet for the rest of the night, with nothing more exciting than watching TV and my aunt telling me about our plans for the next day. The plan that my aunt described had been for all of us to go to an art fair in town. I woke up feeling fine, but by the end of my breakfast, my cramps were so bad that I ended up losing my scrambled eggs and bacon in the bathroom. Even with four ibuprofen, there was no chance of me being able to go. Aunt Linda said they would all stay at home waving her hand and saying that the fair was no big deal. I knew better, based on how much they had talked about it the night before. I also knew that they had pre-purchased tickets at 20 bucks a head. Truth be told, it was a gray day. Cool for July in Mississippi, and I longed for quiet and sleep. But they wouldn't budge about staying home. Mel, honey, what if you get sick again or need something? We'll be gone all day. What about your cell phone, Mel? That was actually a good idea. Uh, yeah, my cell. Take it with you. There's, there's coverage in town, so I can call you if I need to. Billy Ray held up his hand for a high five, but jerked it out of the way as I tried to slap mine into his, causing me to knock over a juice glass and make a mess. Finally, my relatives agreed to compromise by waiting until after lunch to go to the art fair. They agreed to take my cell since none of them had one. Really? in case I started feeling really bad. Uncle Eddie made soup from the tomatoes in the garden and we ate lunch on the back porch. By the time they left, the sky was the color of a battleship and my eyelids were heavy. Aunt Linda found a heating pad for me and made sure that I had a blanket, pillow, and remote control on the couch. I went to the window to wave goodbye to all of them as they got in the car. Billy Ray was climbing up the hood of the car as the rest of the family seemed to be having a serious discussion about who had dibs on shotgun. Even though the sky was overcast with the wind picking up, the satellite TV was working perfectly. I channel surfed for a while before settling on a friend's marathon. Then I lay down on the couch, placing the heating pad on my abdomen and pulling the blanket up to my chin. I was asleep almost immediately. Chandler and Monica were sitting on the couch in the coffee shop, and Rachel was bringing them two giant mugs of coffee while complaining that Phoebe embarrassed her while she ran. Quick cut to Phoebe running through Central Park, laughing and waving her wet noodle arms around. Billy Ray suddenly jumped into the shot, adorable and precocious in his Houston Dynamo outfit. The laugh track roared, and I realized that I was in the park too. 
Phoebe and Billy Ray took off down the path. (laughs) I went with them. Billy Ray left the path and disappeared into the trees, which I realized were the trees behind my aunt and uncle's house. I didn't know that my relatives lived in Central Park. The laugh track erupted. I laughed along. (laughs) Then I was running with Phoebe through the trees and over the little creek. Phoebe stopped. We're lost. Hands on hips, she looked around and threw her hands up in a oh-well gesture and ran again. I wasn't running anymore, but I was still with her, moving over the ground as if I was on wheels. Billy Ray wasn't anywhere to be found. We stopped in a clearing, the one with the little graveyard. I turned and saw a red-headed boy about James's age in a Confederate uniform tapping two drumsticks on a large snare drum that he wore fastened to his body by a wide leather strap across his shoulder. On our right, I heard a rustling in the brush just outside the clearing. From it emerged a dark-skinned teenage girl in generic, stereotypical Native American dress, all buckskin and feathers. She was out of breath and crying. She looked left and right and took off across the clearing. Suddenly, Joey, the handsome, stupid friend, appeared, tackling the girl and pinning her down on the ground. How you doing? Joey! Phoebe laughed, elbowing me in the arm. He does that all the time! The little drummer boy began to do a roll on his drums, the sticks moving so fast that they were almost invisible. I looked up at the trees and saw a face in the leaves, ancient and huge. As I looked, the face slid down from the treetops and multiplied, forming into the trunks of the trees, glowering at Phoebe and me. (laughs) Phoebe started giggling and flopping her arms around and ran, slamming into me. I stumbled and stepped into air. As I fell, I knew that I had fallen into the old well. I jumped awake to fading light from outside in an intense need for ibuprofen, a drink, and the bathroom. I turned on the light in the kitchen and saw that Jamie or Aunt Linda had left a glass of orange juice and some pills on the kitchen counter for me. Two pills were set on a sticky note which read, Take these ibuprofen with the whole glass of juice. I was parched, so I drained the glass after popping the two pills. Having sat on the counter for a whole afternoon, the juice was warm and bitter. The texture was gritty. I ran some water in the glass and swished it around, draining it with what was left of the juice. In the living room, Ross and Phoebe argued over whether or not evolution was real, and Jennifer Aniston complained about being a waitress. I was grateful for the noise from the TV. The light was fading further, and I couldn't help but think of all the cut-em-up movies I'd watched in sleepovers throughout high school. I made my way through the kitchen, the living room, hallway, turning on lights. I felt gross, so after using the bathroom, I stripped off my clothes and climbed into the shower. The combination of the hot water and steam felt wonderful. I lathered all over it at least three times, then I just stood, letting the water jet onto my head. The cramps seemed to be subsiding as the water massaged my scalp. I was just turning around to put my back into the water's path when a sharp pain ripped into my hip. 
Billy Ray was leaning into the shower, grinning up at me as he held the curtain back with one hand. With the other hand, he held a good inch of the skin on my hip in an impossibly tight pinch between his thumb and finger. Not even caring that I was naked, I reached down and grabbed at his wrist, squeezing with all of my might. At that point, he was pinching me so hard that I was afraid he would take the skin with him if I simply tried to push his hand away. I could see the pain. Please, stop it! I tried to remove his hand. His grasp only grew tighter. The pain was making it harder to breathe. The water from the shower was no longer pleasant but an assault, getting into my nose, mouth, blurring my vision. Does it hurt? Billy Bray giggled, <laughs> all eyes and teeth in that crooked grin. I didn't want to give him the satisfaction of answering. I focused on his hand, letting go of the wrist and grasping at the two vice-like fingers, trying to pull them apart. I couldn't, and he managed to pinch even harder. Billy Ray's face hardened, eyes filling with hot anger. It wasn't the face of a child. Does it hurt? Yes! I didn't want to admit it, but I needed him to stop. Billy Ray, that hurts! He let go and stood back, dropping the shower curtain into place. As I stood there under the cool water, unable to stop crying in stupid, pathetic, gasping and moaning sobs, I sensed Billy Ray leaving the bathroom. He didn't slam the door, but I was sure that he closed it three times. By the time I'd stopped crying and gotten into my PJs, I was feeling horrible, like I was coming down with the flu. I was acutely aware of my own breathing and heartbeat, hearing my own pulse in my ears. My legs and arms seemed too heavy. I went into Janie's room and managed to get down on my hands and knees to look under my bed. I was feeling too strange physically to consider what I was feeling otherwise, whether it be fear or anger. I pulled up the bedspread, but Billy Ray wasn't under the bed. It took some effort to get back onto my feet, was I so dizzy? My limbs were even heavier than they had been a moment before. Practically dragging my feet, I inched out of the bedroom down the hallway to the boys' bedroom. Billy Ray? I pushed the door open. I hadn't looked into James and Billy Ray's room before. It was a typical boys' room with a bunk bed and posters of athletes on the wall. There was a messy desk covered in comic books and collectible action figures. I squinted at the room and put my hand to my head. Something was wrong with the room, that something was somewhere in my head, but in my growing disorientation, I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Billy Ray wasn't in this room. My mouth was full of cotton. I needed water. As I turned out of the doorway to make my way down the hall to the kitchen, the floors and walls suddenly did a, a funhouse tilt and I staggered across the hall, hitting the doorknob to my aunt and uncle's room, grabbing onto the doorway to, to study myself. I tried to call for Billy Ray again, but all I could produce was a garbled whisper. Under the voices of the friends chattering in their impossibly large New York apartment, the phone was ringing. Through the increasingly thick cloud that was taking the place in my brain, I realized it wasn't the phone on the TV show, but the kitchen phone. 
The hallway stretched out in front of me, impossibly long and tipping from side to side. I made my way there by holding alternating arms out to brace myself against the hallway, which was now tilting steadily from side to side like, like, like a small boat on a choppy sea. Somehow I reached the phone. I couldn't seem to put the thought together to command my hand to pick up the phone, but it did so. My own cell number was calling on the caller ID, and for a moment, I felt a complete disorientation. How could I be calling? Uncle Eddie and Aunt Linda had taken my phone, I remembered, bringing the phone up to my ear. Hello? The floor tilted. I saw the empty glass and note on the kitchen counter and remembered the pills and the gritty juice. I was sitting on the floor by this point, putting all of my energy into holding onto the phone and trying to form words with a, with a tongue that felt swollen and muddy. And, 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 uh, pills strong. Mel, I can't understand you, honey. What did you say? I was dying, I realized. The gray closing around me was death. I wasn't ready for this. Drawing in a deep breath with all my strength, I said as clearly as possible. The pills were too strong. My strength was completely gone and I fell onto my back, the phone dropping from my hand onto the kitchen floor. I heard a giggle from the living room. Through the gray, I saw Billy Ray grinning a smile of pure bliss as he walked into the kitchen. He was doing this, I realized through the fog. He was the reason I was dying, my little eight-year-old cousin. Why... why... do this... to, to me? The smile faded from Billy Ray's face. In that moment, he looked like a perfectly normal child. The look on his face was genuinely thoughtful. He was, I realized, honestly trying to figure out the answer to my question, as if he'd never stopped to consider it before. After a moment, he looked into my eyes. His eyes looked sad and very, very old. You know, I don't really know. Then Billy Ray was smiling again and climbing. The wall, across the ceiling. He smacked the light fixture as he crawled past it, making it swing. He crawled down across the kitchen cabinets onto the counter and down lower so that his face was just above mine. I sank down into the gray, feeling a level of terror that I had never imagined despite years of reading hardcore horror. I got you where I want you. This was real. And I was dying. My world went from gray to black as the canned audience laughed in the living room. I didn't die, obviously, since I'm telling this story, and as far as I know, I'm not a ghost. At least not yet. I woke up in the hospital. My relatives have sped home after a phone conversation, such as it was. They found me on the kitchen floor in my pajamas, my head in a puddle of vomit. 
Aunt Linda and Uncle Eddie had rushed me to the hospital while Janie and James stayed behind trying to figure out what was wrong with me. I had mentioned pills when they'd called. I was later told, so they went straight to the medicine cabinets. Uncle Eddie had an old bottle of oxycodone from some oral surgery he had had a couple years earlier, and it was missing from his cabinet. Janie found it under my bed, empty. Uncle Eddie couldn't remember how many he'd taken and how many were in the bottle, but I knew that there had been at least two that were on the counter. However many Billy Ray had put into the orange juice. I was given naloxone and charcoal, and I lived. I was in my hospital bed with Janie in the chair beside me, watching TV when Uncle Eddie called to tell me he'd reached my parents in Santa Marta and that they'd be with me in a couple of days. I was so happy that I cried. Later, James, Aunt Linda, and Uncle Eddie all joined Janie around my bed. They looked at me kindly. Aunt Linda finally spoke. Mel, honey, why did you take those pills? Have you ever taken something like that before? No longer caring whether or not they wanted to spoil the baby of the family, I told them that Billy Ray had tricked me into taking the pills. They still looked at me kindly, but I could see frustration on Aunt Linda's face. Now, ma'am, you know that isn't true. Stop playing and tell us what happened. It was him, I swear. I looked back and forth at all of them. They looked at Uncle Eddie, who cleared his throat. Well, now, <laughs> Billy Ray's our trickster, but let's not get carried away. He's not a trickster. He's a Confederate drummer boy, or a Choctaw girl who ran away to escape an arranged marriage, right, Janie? No, I don't think that anymore. I think he's a nature spirit, an elemental. He's never been anything close to human. Y'all! My aunt looked at me. Now, Mel, you know that we just blame Billy Ray for anything odd that happens in the house. I couldn't wrap my brain around what I was hearing. Then, like the last piece of a jigsaw puzzle clicking in place, I understood what had been off about James's bedroom. It was the room of a 13-year-old boy. There were no toys or little kids' games, none of the things that an eight-year-old boy would have. In fact, I realized I hadn't seen any toys in any part of the house. Billy Ray wasn't the baby of the family. Billy Ray... wasn't. But... the doors slamming three times, the, the, the stuff moving around? Well, the house is on a bit of a hill contractors. They used the cheapest materials they could find to build it. We actually threatened to sue them, truth be told. The door isn't hung properly and that hallway is drafty. The door, well, it just slams on its own. Well, he took a shower, remember? James had to go and turn the water off and you, 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 you said that. Mel. There's a problem with the water pressure in our bathroom. The water comes on a bit, and we have to turn it off. We used to call him Mr. Nobody, but that was too creepy. So we started calling him Billy Ray. So he's a ghost? Aunt Linda let out a frustrated puff of air and closed her eyes. 
Desperate, I looked at Janie, willing her to back me up. Janie, you told me yourself that the house was haunted. You said it was haunted. Janie looked from me to her parents and then back to me again. Oh, Mel. Weird things happen in that house, but we're so far out in the country and it's so quiet. I mean, every sound seems louder and scarier out there. I like to say it's haunted with the graveyard out back and everything, but... Mel, come on. All that stuff happens all the time. I didn't bother trying to prove my point after I saw the look on Janie's face shift from concerned to suspicious to annoyed. I didn't protest when the therapist came to see me in my hospital room to talk to me about the dangers of opioids. I didn't defend myself when Aunt Linda gave me a speech about teenage drama and the need for attention. I didn't even bother to show anyone the deep red and purple bruise on my hip. They'd probably think that I did it to myself. I couldn't take seeing anyone hearing me speak and then giving each other knowing looks and nods. My parents showed up and took me home. My senior year went as much do, full of college applications, dates with some very nice boys and some not-so-nice ones. Arguments and reconciliations. Promises written in yearbooks, none of which would be kept for long. I started taking birth control for the horrible cramps and it, it really helped. And between all the normal stuff, there was lots of therapy. A lot of crying and avoiding going outside and, and many nights spent in my bedroom with the lights on or sleeping on a pallet on my parents' bedroom floor. I finally figured out that I could sleep in my own room if I had my mattress directly on the floor. That way, nothing could hide underneath. Mom and Aunt Linda don't talk much anymore. I wrote a few letters to Janie, but she only wrote back once. My mom said that she must have been very busy and not to take it personally. My freshman year at college is going well. I like my classes and my roommate, although she sleeps way too much. I've learned when the showers in my dorm are the busiest, and I always shower then, so there's no chance of being alone in the room. I don't have to work, so I have plenty of time to study, which I do all the time, or so my roommate tells me. I keep busy. I'm okay as long as I'm busy. When I'm not busy, that's when I'm not okay. That's when I'll find myself shaking. First, deep inside my chest and, and then all over. When I'm not busy, I'm liable to see a face with dark, tousled hair and a snaggletooth smile peeking from behind a tree or in through the window of a classroom door. Or I'll catch a glimpse of a little boy in a Houston Dynamo kit disappearing around a corner. When I'm not busy, I start to cry every time a door in the dorm slams certain that the one slam will be followed by two more. When I'm not busy, I think about the bruise on my hip and how the marks matched exactly where my fingers would be if I had pinched myself. Sometimes I lie in the small bed in my dorm room, listening to my roommate's snores and the muffled noises in the hallway, and behind my closed eyes, I see Billy Ray. A little boy in a soccer jersey, a Confederate drummer boy, a Choctaw maiden, an elemental spirit. 
mim. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.